Well, it's time for a return conversation with my good old pal. <laughs> I guess, really, I shouldn't refer to the Salt Lake County District Attorney as my good old pal. Um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a fine gentleman, and I like him a lot, though. Sim Gill. And uh, it's a return conversation. Uh, we talked to Sim quite some time ago uh, when he was in the throes of the John Swallow, Mark Shirtliff investigation. And uh, we talked about that again this time. Uh, because part of that investigation is still ongoing, the John Swallow part. We talked to Sim Gill a lot about philosophy of government and a citizen's role in government and what we should all be doing to help make this a better community and a better country. He's a thoughtful guy, Sim Gill is. He's a nice guy and I think a great, great person. And I don't say that about uh, prosecuting attorneys very often. But he's a great guy. Sim Gill, Salt Lake County District Attorney, our guest on uh, the Let's Go Eat show this time. Uh, thanks to uh, 50 West for uh, supplying us a table and, and preparing us a French fry or two. And uh, uh, thanks to Sim for sitting down with us. And he's promised to come back and do another show talking about the results of the national elections. Uh, he and uh, Jim DeBacchus and me and probably Dylan uh, sitting down and talking about the national elections uh, after the November election date. So anyway, here it is, the Let's Go Eat show and Sim Gill. All right. People usually don't talk about things that are that interesting. Okay, uh, yeah. And uh, our, our good friend Sim Gill, Salt Lake County District Attorney here. And don't be afraid to eat while we're... Okay, good enough. As you see, I'm... <laughs> it's called the Let's Go Eat Show, so I just I, I munch away uh, throughout the entire process. One of the better interviews than I, I have because I'm joining you in eating here as well, so yeah. that's uh, wonderful. Here at 50 West. And, and Sim, by the way, is having now an egg white omelet, and he's watching what he eats because I hadn't seen you for a while, and I what's the first thing I said? You look trim. Yeah. 40 pounds you lost? 40 pounds. I've lost 40 pounds. Yeah, get a little closer to the I've, mic. I've, li- I've lost 40 pounds. Uh, Scoot it a little closer to uh, you. Absolutely. There we go. There we go. Yeah, there we go. That's good. So, yeah, I lost 40 pounds and, uh, you know, exercising. And and I call what I'm doing is not dieting, just mindful eating, I think. Conscious eating. We've become such a culture that we just kind of eat as a appendage to our existence. I have yeah. the tendency uh, to do know, that, yeah. You know, and I think that uh, once we sort of uh, do what I call mindful eating, I think uh, you still get to enjoy. I love to eat. I love to drink. And I'm not compromising and giving up on that. But uh, I needed to lose some weight for uh, other health reasons. And mm-hmm. in, in I had a bad knee. And uh, it's been great. Well, you look terrific. Thank you. You're very So kind. I don't know where you, you were on our show uh, before. Uh, I think we did a two-part show with you quite some time. This might be our third hour with you. Well, that, that's lovely. I, I, it's a pleasure to be here. I enjoy this. I enjoy our sort of free-willing conversation. And I wish more people would do these kind of uh, community conversations and uh, so i enjoyed this so yes, thank you a lot of people don't like to do it because they're <laughs> because they're i think they're afraid of what they'll say or some you know like they don't want yeah. to let their guard down a little bit well but. you know we are who we are uh, as human beings and uh, with our uh, flaws and everything and i think it's just let's just uh, talk we we've lost the art of conversation I absolutely think. yeah um i don't i'm gonna start maybe with the uh, because it's been happening recently the situation with the homeless yeah. here in Salt Lake and, and how that's being handled and what's going on with that. This is this is something that has been bothering Bill for a long time. Like Almost every day, 
he comes into the office, you know, here upstairs, and is, you know, I saw there these homeless people here, and yeah. and, it, and it's growing here, and they're here, and they're camping I, here, and it it's I, really it's really been upsetting you. Yeah, it has, and, and I because I've been spending a lot of time in that part of town, the west, yeah. da- uh, down around Pioneer Park, and. Um, Behind the Rio Grande Station, and if you drive, if you drive along behind the Rio Grande Station on four four hundred West, right, it looks like a it looks like a goddamn refugee camp. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, you know for being um, you know here you know I think it's a very unique and interesting problem that we have here. We are one of the richest countries in the world, and when you go into sometimes into our inner cities, you could be in a third world country. You could be in a mm-hmm. country that uh, certainly is not consistent with the level of wealth that we represent at a at an international scale. And this really is a a tragedy. It's a failed policy, and we've neglected certain uh, segments of our responsibilities in the community. So what's been really interesting about this, and you know, I, I talked about this. We had a press conference, and I mentioned it there. Um, and I've been a prosecutor for over 20-plus years now. I remember in 1994 as a line prosecutor, as a city prosecutor, having this exact same conversation about the homeless problem, this population that was out there. Uh, and uh, and fast forward 20-plus years, and we're still having the same conversation. And part of my analysis really is, Bill, is that when policymakers fail to address their public policy issues, whether it is social justice, economic justice, political justice, environmental health, physical health issues, these weighty policy issues, when they fail to abdicate and they act on it and abdicate their responsibility, those public policy deficits then manifest themselves as crisis in the community. And historically, we've and disproportionately relied upon law enforcement to be the answer to that. And when we look at the history of it, that's how we end up with um, this whole issue of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, mass incarceration, uh, the, politi- uh, the criminalization of status, uh, and the criminalization of mental illness and uh, poverty. And, and that, and frankly, is the wrong answer because one is disproportionately used against people of color and minority populations as well as against uh, people who are marginalized and maybe not at the higher rungs of economic wealth. And, and it's also the most costliest one we have. That's why we incarcerate more human beings in the United States of America than any other country in the world. Any other country. country any other country. Um, you know, when I sometimes lectured, I said, you know, USA is number one, China's number two, Russia's number three, and Cuba's number four. With a fast uh, 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 ascending to the fourth place now by Brazil. But I want you to pause and think for a second. Those other countries, China, Russia, and Cuba, in the 20th century represented the most uh, totalitarian regimes. We represent freedom, and yet we incarcerate more human beings than any other country in the world. And it has collateral consequences. I mean, this whole discussion with the Black Lives Matter uh, that's been going on, which is really talking about the same issues that have been going on historically. You know, it was interesting this last summer. I read uh, two books on vacation back-to-back, Tanishi Coates, uh, Between the World and Me, and James Baldwin, uh, The Fire the Next Time. And there was a 60-year span between these two authors. And there's James Baldwin uh, talking about the same issues 60-plus years ago that Tanishi Coates is talking about within the African-American community uh, in the inner cities. And that's really a sad commentary. And our homeless population is, again, a sad commentary. So what this really means is we've got to come up with better ways. And we have come up with some better ways to respond from uh, uh, to finally address this issue. Well, what... Do, what <clears throat> What do politicians think they are supposed to be doing? What, what is it that they 
What, what, as you perceive it, you, you see what goes on mm-hmm. on Capitol Hill here uh, every year, uh, every January. What, what do they perceive is their role uh, in, in our society? Well, we elect them to do what? Well, you know, I think we, I think we have, it used to be, you know, you know let, me, let, me, let me share it for you this way. You know, my family emigrated, my father emigrated here in 1969, we came here in 1971, and some, and, and during the political discourse, I, you know, sometimes I've said the best political education that I got was that I was not born in this country. And what I mean by that sometimes is that I've seen poverty, I've seen uh, corruption, I've seen uh, what a, a corrupt government looks like. Mm-hmm. And and when my uh, my parents emigrated and other pe- people who emigrated here, we came here with an ideal in mind about a representative government, a a, a government that was responsive and actually cared about its community. And I think in, during the 30s, 40s, and 50s, we had a national sense of what it meant to be politically involved. And even though you had political uh, differences from an ideological perspective, at the end of the day, you came down to what, you, what was in the best interest of our community. I think our evolution politically has come down to be more uh, ideologically uh, uh, identified, and it is more polarized. And now we represent specific interests. Although we use the terms of constituency in the public at large as a generic uh, placeholder, we really come there with agendas, and we have lost our connection as elected officials to solve our problems. So when Abraham Lincoln says, you know, the the proper role of government is to do for individuals what they cannot do in their individual capacity. Say, it, say that again. The proper role of government is to do for individuals what they could not do in their own individual capacity. I'm paraphrasing Abraham Lincoln. He recognized that there are issues and uh, and uh, problems that may transcend individual uh, uh, capacity. And we live as a civilized society because we, in a representative way, we want to say that we want to take on these weightier issues to to feed are the better angels of ourselves uh, to be moving forward in a linear progression rather than in this sort of myopic existential angst that we find ourselves, which we call the political debate, where it is about alienation, it's about agendas, it's about uh, what I can get for myself to get reelected or the agency that I'm lobbying for. We have lost that sensibility of community is what I'm getting at. You, and, you, you, um, I, mean, I mean, suppose a, a conservative a Republican or a libertarian or somebody would say that they absolutely agree with you, but why is that the government's job to do that? Because – As opposed to you – know, I mean, you know. Let's because go, it is. <laughs> well, no, well let's, go back, let's go back this way. Uh, let's go back to sort of our experience on a purely philosophical way. We can start as individuals with our subjective references of who we are and the world is sort of tied to my navel and that's my point uh, of when I exist. But when we, when we get married to somebody, have a partner, we have a family, the, my political or my personal concern extends beyond myself to those who are the circle of my community, which we can call my family. And from my family, it then extends beyond to my community of the place where I live. And what I'm sort of suggesting is, is that we have a sense of social commitment because we don't live as hermits on a island by our own, uh, in a, our own islands. So, government plays a role as a stabilizing factor. It plays a role as a cohesion to civil society. And and you know what? 
I don't have the money to uh, to make the roadway from my whole, uh, house to my work. So we share into that burden together. And I know that people use the word taxes as this sort of evil thing. And what I'm suggesting is uh, another way to think of what we what we do as citizens. We invest in our community. We invest in the kind of neighborhood we want, with the kind of lawn I want, the, the streets that I want. And government is that thing that allows me to have the conversation with you without necessarily having lunch with you. Yeah. And, uh, and, the, and, and that is really the role of government, is to serve as that cohesive element of bringing different interests together because we share a common space and because we have to live with each other and because we also as human beings, both uh, existentially and philosophically, are connected beyond our subjective existence and reference. Government is our political and social conversation with each other. Yeah. And, it, and, and it seems pretty clear to me that the role of government in that in that context has to be uh, providing for the general welfare yes um, safety yes making sure that we live in a stable environment so that there isn't social upheaval right not passing laws that mandate you 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 cover up liquor bottles behind a bar right or or just the the stupid minutia that we get involved in, and it also it also says to me that the Supreme Court was absolutely wrong when they said corporations are are individuals are the same as people as individual people. Right. They are not. They're not. And uh, and I think I think you're touching upon something very interesting here. So the thing is, there is a I think an organic function of government when we come together as a group of people. You know, look if if uh, if we're neighbors and we all get together because uh, there's an issue in our neighborhood, in a way we're practicing a form of rudimentary sort of governmental uh, action because we're coming to some sense of consensus. We're uh, trying to address a problem, and we're trying to better safeguard our community. But one of the things that is unique about the United States of America is that we're just not ad hoc communities uh, or individual states that simply exist out there in a vacuum. The cohesive, the cohesive factor for us is our Constitution. And our Constitution has basically says, here are the rules of interaction and engagement. Those are sort of our grammar rules, if you will. They're the rules of our grammar of how we're going to converse with each other politically and socially in a way that help us make an intelligent conversation. So what the Constitution then tells us is that we're going to come together and there are these are the rules which we're going to live by. And that means that we don't get to micromanage individual existence. So uh, to your point earlier, Dylan, is that, is that, you know what, I'm a libertarian, I'm a conservative, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a progressive, but more fundamentally before any of those titles, I am a United States citizen, I'm a, a member of this community, I'm a person in a neighborhood, I'm a father, I'm a, I'm mm-hmm. a person who lives in, and participates. So we cannot simply have our identities be uh, predefined by these labels, but rather need to go back to our human interactions of why we come together, the problems that we're solving. And I've always said this. Neither the Republicans or the Democrats or any other political party has a monopoly either on brilliance nor stupidity. 
Okay, and that's our human agency. We're not we're imperfect beings, and through those imperfections, if we're honest about it, we can make progress. And that really is my expectations of government. Is government the answer to everything? No, but the government can be a stabilizing factor for so we don't kill each other and we don't go off and live in our little hermetically sealed homes or or caves in Montana somewhere. But rather, we uh, we can be civilized and interact with each other. Uh, uh, let's. Let's turn this back then to uh, from the, from the, the great to the small and the the, the homeless people yes, let's, and let's that, that refugee camp behind. Yes, let's, yeah. Um, uh, now that those people that are down there on that park strip, th- those aren't all homeless people. There right, there right. are people there preying on homeless people. Uh, it's become an open air drug market in yes. a lot of uh, cases, an open air prostitution market uh, yes. in a lot of cases. Um, how do you think the best what what is the best way to deal so, with that so problem so why i'm excited is that <clears throat> uh, like i said for over 20 years we've been sort of hitting and missing and misfiring and what's exciting right now uh, is that i've got uh, uh, mayor biskupski i've got mayor mcadams i have chief brown i have uh, uh, sheriff winder and the district attorney's office and and and, and uh, you know we also had uh, representative hughes there we had uh, representative hutchings there we had uh, representative gibson there and these folks have all come together and we recognize that first of all our old methodology has not been giving us the return on investment that we've been making, and we've been making a lot of investment. Two, we need to recognize what is the situation before us. And the situation is exactly like you said. Are there people on economic uh, uh, dire straits there? Absolutely. Are there good people on uh, with bad luck uh, find themselves situationally uh, homeless? Yes. And they're simply trying to survive and get by. But within that, within those gazelles, uh, within those deer come in the lions, the people who are predatory, who hide and in the anonymity of that crowd for the sole purpose of exploiting that population, of manipulating that population, and manipulating the environment for personal gain, profiteering off their, uh, their drug inter- uh, sales and whatnot. So we have to f- tease out those are the criminal em- element there and those that are de- generally in need of services. And when we look at that, and there's also a gray area in the overlap. Those are people who may be addicted, who may be mentally mm-hmm. ill, who find themselves that. So the goal is to provide the help to those that we can provide help to, to pull out and tease out those that are engaging in criminal uh, actions and to aggressively prosecute those folks. But the paradigm shift is this. We can pontificate all we want as policymakers, and we really have to back our ideas with resources. And this is what this, uh, this operation diversion has been all about. It's about saying, okay, if I'm going to show up there and say that I want to correct the situation, I have to be honest enough to say, what is your need? And if you're a drug addict who is addicted, I need to then give you that treatment bed. I've got to wrap those services around you in real time. And what's been fascinating, Bill, what has been fascinating has been that over 50% of the people so far have voluntarily opted for treatment. And what I've said as a public prosecutor is, I am much more interested in your recovery and getting you the help that you need. I can always prosecute you. 
And if you're if you're willing to if you're willing to take that step, then we're going to make find your success. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to fail in that, and if I need to subsequently prosecute you in terms of if you're engaged in criminal behavior and don't get it, we can always do that. But here's the thing: more than 50 percent of the people have voluntarily engaged in treatment, and some of them. And we've got tweets back, we've got uh, emails back from parents who said, "Thank you for this. We didn't know how to reach out to our daughter. We didn't know how to reach out to some a loved one." And and from those people who are genuinely, honestly. Uh, uh, thankful that we're actually providing them with the services and they're engaged. Now, that is a win. At the same time, let me be absolutely clear, the one who's profiteering and manipulating and exploiting these individuals, here's the second part of the conversation for public safety. My office is going to aggressively prosecute these folks and hold them accountable, and we're not going to let them go and fall through the cracks. So what I've told them is, uh, the policymakers is, I will follow them doggedly for the next 18 to 36 months, make sure that they're compliant, and we're going to assign specific prosecutors to manage that caseload. So it's an experiment, but it's an experiment in which we're gathering data. We're going to then go back and reapply that data and continue to, in a methodical way, build a better system, and we're backing it up with resources, and we're demonstrating to our policymakers up on the hill, this is the way you can do it, and for you, as the policymakers, we're going to ask you for money and resources, and if you're going to invest it as any good investor, you should say, what is my return on investment? What is my risk? And am I going to get the best bang for the buck? And we're going to demonstrate, and we are demonstrating that right now. Now, have you already seen the uh, the caseload of prosecutions, I yeah, would assume? Yes. Because there have been two major sweeps. That's correct. I, think, the, and I would assume that you've seen well, the caseload go up. Yeah, and I don't like using the term sweep uh, because that mm-hmm. implies sort of an arbitrariness coming into a, a, a particular location. Have you been, have you been down there when uh, they've uh, done this? I've been part of this process for the last, actually, five Six months. Maybe describe describe to people when because that's how it's described in the paper. So, I think so, it's so like let, it's a sweep. So let me let me. What do they do exactly? So what they're first of all, what we're doing is we're gathering, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, intelligence. We're going in a surgical way. We're identifying those people who are in mental health needs and helping them. Those who are in the drug addiction needs, we're helping them. Those that are engaged in criminal behavior, we're surgically coming in in a targeted way to both maximize our resources and to get to the heart of the problem. And now this is going to open up a wider discussion about our homeless uh, uh, shelters. It's going to talk about our social services, but it's bringing all these partners to the table so we're not wasting our resources and we're targeting our resources to those individuals who are either a problem or those that are in genuine need of services. And are, are so are the police and other like there are probably social workers involved Absolutely. in this. Are they going and down yeah. there and talking to Absolutely. each individual person? Tell me your story. Yeah. Who are you? What are you doing? So here? we're gathering data. So first of all, obviously, this is a part of a criminal uh, 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 violations that we're identifying. Is there some uh, sort of undercover stuff going uh, uh, on as well? Well, you know, the, you know, I can't go into the details <laughs> of it, but but I can tell you this. So what when when a person is uh, found. They come to a receiving center that we have where they're, where they're given a physical health uh, review. We're getting de- demographic information about them. They're put in immediately. Uh, this Remember, no charges have been yet filed, but there is a probable cause. So we're not just arbitrarily grabbing people, uh, although there is community outreach occurring for those people separately as well. And then they're provided with a legal defender because we want to make sure that their due process rights are protected. Uh, then uh, we uh, do a risk needs assessments to find out exactly 
exactly where they are, if they're high risk, high need. We're doing, and this is not anecdotal, these are on validated instruments to go through a scientific process. Then we find out that this person can benefit from treatment, and then they meet with the, uh, the prosecution, and we say to them, here's the thing. Theoretically, we can file these charges, but we're much more interested in your recovery. And are you interested in taking advantage, and not as a future promise, but here's a warm bed, here is a treatment provider, here's a person who we're going to do a warm body handoff, and you're going to go into treatment right now. Not six months from now, not as a, some future Does promise. Does anybody ever say no to that? You know what? We've had a few that said no, but we have had few, several of them who've genuinely broken down and said, oh, my God, thank you so much. This, I need this help. I don't know how to step out of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, and taken us up on that, and that is really the the uh, the level of investment and community partnership. We have community agencies, all of us coming together, and it's a community response to a community challenge. And the data that we're going to collect from this is going to help us with future. Uh, 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 policy direction on how to best invest those resources. This is genuinely and uniquely phenomenal. How did it get so out of hand? Uh, you know, it used to, it seemed like we had things uh, a couple of years ago at least a little bit under control. Um, uh, Utah was held up as a, uh, a, a, a shining beacon in, in how homelessness was dealt with and getting people into housing and that sort yeah. of thing, which I think is still going on yeah, and is still, still important. Yeah. But, but then all of a sudden... It seemed like overnight we saw this explosion. Well, of- I, I think I think we saw certainly saw an outcry from the public, which comes in sort of what I call cycles. But this issue, unfortunately, has been uh, here for a long time. These public policy failures that I mentioned earlier did not happen overnight. This we contributed as a society through our benign neglect and uh, uh, a political and uh, a policy perspective. We helped create this situation. And one of the honest conversations we have to have is what have been our public policy failures and what have been our misinvestments on wrong data to systemically respond with those scarce tax dollars. As I said to you, I'm a fiscal conservative as much as anybody Mm -hmm. else. But making emotional investments rather than logical investment, making personalized agenda investments rather than research-based investment has gotten us into this, but so have public policy failures. Part of that blame is our our neglect in the political civic engagement that every citizen has a, a responsibility in when they want to own their democracy. People need to wake up and say that they are part of this political process. It does not happen in a vacuum separate from them. Your silence, your apathetic attitude is still a, 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 a contribution to the problem. And everybody needs to take ownership of their democracy. Nobody can escape that responsibility. Is this is this your favorite uh, part of your job? Uh, the the social activism part uh, of it. Well, you know, because, uh, because you know, you sort of don't think of a a prosecutor as 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 that. That's what he does. Oh. You. You know, that's a very interesting thing because early on in my career, I was in front of the city council uh, and one of the council person once said, because, you know, we started talking, I started talking about these criminal justice reform issues almost 20 years ago. And uh, somebody said, Mr. Gill, you're a public prosecutor. You're not a social worker. And I said, with all due respect, sir, have you looked at the population that we're dealing with? Mm -hmm. Because we are criminalizing status. We're criminalizing mental illness. We're criminalizing what is a public health issue. Look, uh, here's an interesting thing. We've been talking about the opiate epidemic here. What our data is showing us right now, over 90%, 95% of the people that were part of this operation 
there are opiate addiction issues with 95% of them, uh, you know, between 90 and 95% of those folks are heroin addic- addictions. So it, that is directly tied to the pain prescription issue. And, here. And, and, it, and it would be yeah. a, a similar story if you uh, talk to almost every one of that 90% yeah, yeah, yeah. would be, well, I, I had uh, an accident or an operation and I needed pain pills uh, and now I'm behind the Rio uh, Grande station well, shooting up heroin. When you can go down on, uh, on, on State Street and buy a yeah. $2 dose of heroin. Yeah, you're not going to you're not going to pay for $80 for a prescription pain yeah. pill out on the street either. Yeah. So so the thing is, it's a fascinating thing in terms of economics. Now, to answer your question, which you said earlier, as I said, we all have a role to play in it. I want to hold criminals who are a risk to my community accountable, who are violent, who put a risk to your safety and my safety and our family's safety. But at the same time, I am also part of a system that is overburdened by these policy neglect, and I have to address those issues because it, it, my, my commitment to you is this. If you give me as a tax uh, uh, payer $1 to spend on an issue, then it is my responsibility to make sure that dollar is spent in the right way, not in an emotional way, in the right way so we can solve our problem because that goes back to our earlier uh, mm-hmm. question. You talked about the role of government. The role, the role of government is to do for people what they cannot do in their individual capacity, and in this sense, we have an epidemic. We have social problems. We have a, a failed criminal justice system, and we need to do something better than what we been doing for the last 30 years. And if that's uh, social activism or if that's uh, doing that, uh, then I'm guilty of it. But I think that's the moral responsibility of every citizen, whatever lot that we have. So let me let me rephrase it this way. I'm not doing anything exceptional as a public prosecutor. I, this is a privilege to have this. Citizens have given me that uh, uh, responsibility. But whether you're a janitor or a neurosurgeon or a college professor or a stay-at-home mom or a, a, a school teacher, all of us have a role to play in the kind of society that we want. I'm going to give an address uh, on Saturday to a bunch of educators, and, uh, and I'm going to draw that connection between what I do and what they do. We, in our own little ways cannot be silent or abdicate our responsibility to democracy and to building a better community. Either those are just vacuous words or we take them seriously, and that's a challenge uh, to every citizen to be involved civically. Mm -hmm. But as as the Salt Lake County District Attorney uh, and Chief Prosecutor, wouldn't you like just a a real interesting murder case occasionally? Well, well, you know, here, look, and and that's a very real part of my job. Here's something I will tell, and I don't don't think I've discussed this publicly yet, but uh, right now, uh, from last year to this year, I've had a 79% increase in our homicide rate. Okay. And really? Yes. In, in Salt Lake. So Salt Lake has big city problems. Uh, we've got homicide problem issues. We've got gang problem issues. We've got, uh, you know, a criminal activity issues. And but you cannot say crime and put everything that we have failed in social policy into one basket. So we have. So my scarce dollars, I want to spend on those homicides. I want to spend on those gang uh, issues. I want to spend on, on those sex assaults that we've got. But when we overburden the system with these other social justice issues, then we, I'm taking that dollar that, mm-hmm. and, and I have to split it up 15 ways. Maybe I need to only split it up two ways is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, um, high-profile uh, case uh, that you've been involved in um, for a long time, and that's um, Mark Shirtliff uh, and uh, John Swallow, 
former attorneys general mm-hmm. uh, with the state of Utah. Uh, Swallow still uh, has charges pending against him. That's correct. Public corru- essentially corruption mm-hmm. charges. A whole series of different charges, yeah. yes. Uh, uh, Mark Shurtleff, uh, everything against him, I guess, has been dropped. That's correct. Um, the speculation uh, that we have is that, well, they drop charges against him because eventually he'll have a lot to say um, against John Swallow. Well, you know, <laughs> look, uh, I, let me, you know, there's been a lot of speculation, but let me just sort of say a couple of things. One, uh, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of information, so we split the cases. Uh, one case, Mr. Shirtlips went to my colleague, uh, Troy Rawlings from Davis County. Uh, my office kept the prosecution against Mr. Swallow. And we did it because of workload issues and also because we just, you know, one case needed mm-hmm. uh, another office there, and, and we did that. And as such, I respect the decisions that uh, uh, Mr. Rawlings needed to make for his prosecution, which was uh, of Mr. S- uh, Mr. Shirtlip. And uh, so at that point, he manages that case, and he's made the decisions that he's made, and, uh, and those were within his discretion to do so. Uh, we have our case with Mr. Swallow, and we are executing on our case in the way that we think is best for that case. Uh, and, and it's important to us that this case go through a very uh, public process of, uh, of due process. We go through, we have a court system. I believe in that process. Will there be uh, a trial, a public well, trial? Uh, well, as of right now, it's, uh, it's uh, set to, uh, to go forward uh, uh, early part of next year. But uh, there, there's a legal process. They, they've, uh, you know, they've appealed on an interlock uh, appeal because they wanted to go back uh, uh, because Judge Mills had made a ruling that uh, you know he had made certain selections in the process and that we were not going to go back. And that's what happens. You file motions, you fight the motions, you argue the law. And at the end of the day, I, tr- I trust the process as a public prosecutor. Whatever is the outcome, it, it is the process that lends integrity, legitimacy, and transparency to the expectations of our citizens. And I think it's important to go through that process. And we're going to do everything within our power because we believe in the case to uh, go forward. Otherwise, we wouldn't have filed on it. So our prosecution is moving forward. We will uh, follow the strict uh, dictates of the law, and we will let the process dictate where and when and how it uh, ultimately is resolved. Um, uh, maybe you can uh, refresh my memory on uh, one of the reasons that Troy Rawlings gave for uh, dismissing the charges against uh, Mark Shirtliff was that he said something about the way uh, a new uh, Supreme Court ruling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what was that again? I, well, I'm trying well, to, it was it was kind an, of form it, it right so it, I could it, ask it, you the it, question. It's the, it's the McDonald, Governor, McNa- uh, Governor yeah, McDonald yeah, yeah. case from back east, and uh, there was a Supreme Court ruling that basically reversed that conviction. That's and uh, he, the Governor McDonald, uh, had received all kinds of gifts. That's, that's right. From uh, from a vitamin company, uh, as I recall. Well, there was a big donor there, yeah. and there were personal gifts to him and yeah. his family and so forth. So yeah, there's been a lot of speculation about that and you know we take a very different interpretation and not in not an abstract uh, uh, interpretation so for example one when you look at the ruling it was a 9-0 decision from the united states supreme court and they basically they took great pain to say one we're not talking about the constitutionality of this what what this really was was an appeal to them about a jury instruction and what and what the definition of this sort of uh, corruption was under the federal system and how the term was so the ruling, when you look at it, 
did not go to the heart or the merits of the case. It went to a federal uh, prosecution. It went to a definition. It went to a jury instruction component of it. And from our analysis, we did not think it had direct, the kind of bearing that some people have thought it did in our prosecution at the state uh, of the case that's before us. Mm-hmm. So analytically, we reached a very different conclusion than, than some... Than uh, Troy Rawlings. Well, said. other people, and, mm-hmm. uh, and not just Troy, but other people, you know, and uh, who reached that conclusion. And uh, they're reading it one way. We're reading it what we think uh, contextualizing it another way. And uh, we still feel that, uh, you know, as I've said, Mr. Shirtliff's case is Mr. Shirtliff's case. Mr. Swallow's case is Mr. Swallow's case. And uh, we did not think that in, in our prosecution of Mr. Uh, Swallow that it has the kind of gravitas that some people have wanted to give it to, uh, I mean, in the legal community. Will we ever know, the public, will we ever know exactly what happened with all of this? Well, it's a it's a very complex matter. Uh, Mr. Je- Mr. Mark Sessions Jensen is that his name? Um, uh, what, the uh, guy who had the San Diego. Oh, 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 oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mark Jensen. Mark yeah, Jensen. Yeah. He 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 seems to think that he has a lot of information that hasn't come well, out yet. Well, you know, look, uh, I think my colleague has talked about, and I'll and I'll say it this way. Um, uh, this is singularly one of the most complex cases that I've certainly been a part of, and and there are mo- multiple different agencies from the feds to the Department of Justice to the FBI to the, uh, the state legislature uh, to uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, to two local prosecutors. Uh, <laughs> Everybody's that, been uh, involved. Uh, uh, you know, yeah. uh, people who are part of the nexus of people in politics here in the state of Utah, people at the national level, uh, uh, including other senators and different uh, uh, agencies and interests. So the thing is, it can seem, and it is, it's a very monolithic kind of thing, but you have to break it down to its constituent elements, for which is a state prosecution on state charges. Are there other collateral issues? Yes, there are a whole host of other collateral issues, but um, but I certainly don't have the resources nor the authority to pursue those. Uh, what those federal agencies did or didn't do, I'm not going to speculate about other than to say that in Salt Lake County, we have articulated what we think are charges of criminal wrongdoing against Mr. Swallow, and that's what we're focused on. Uh, what, can you tell me what a grant, <clears throat> what is the role, what, grand juries? Yeah. Uh, we don't seem to have those too much. You know, we? Utah is a very interesting state. Um, uh, let, let's you know. Let's maybe talk about it. Thank you for asking that question. It's when you go back and look into our constitution. It's a very interesting. I'm going to give you a sort of the like constitution a, of the United, United States. States. I'm going to give you a little bit of historical context, if you will. So, for example, one of the core principles was that we wanted all different. We have three different branches of government, right? We have the uh, the executive branch, the the judiciary. Uh, and the legislative branch. And our structure, when it was originally created, and don't take my word for it, it's kind of an interesting reading. Go li- read a call, read Amar's book on the Constitution. It's fantastic, one of the best books ever written on the Constitution. And when you look at the formation of the Constitution, our founding fathers wanted direct contact and checks and balances, not only amongst the three branches of government, but they wanted the checks and balances with citizens as well. So when you talk about uh, legislators, they're elected by the citizens, so there's a checks and balances within that. 
when you talk about uh, uh, you know the uh, the executive, those uh, executives are elected by the citizens. There's a role to play in that. But when you get to the judiciary, there was no really direct checks and balances with the citizenry. So at one theory is that the the introduction of the grand jury was the putting of the the, the checks and balances of citizens because those charges could not be fabricated in a star chamber of like a, you know they talk about in this uh, a, ju- a judge could be basically be immune from or the criminal process could be immune from that oversight. It, one extension of that is in the jury uh, the jury trials that we have. But that's after the charges have been filed. Right. The grand jury idea was really to embed and empower citizens to review even the articulation of the charges through the checks and balance process. And that was adopted by many different states, and then we subsequently evolved. And in Utah, we have this very strange thing. We don't really have grand juries because we do what are called preliminary hearings, which are uh, uh, we present the evidence before a judge, and the judge decides we have enough evidence to go forward. But we can call grand juries, so they didn't take them away completely. We can call them, but we have to go before a panel of other judges and petition them for the permission to do that. Now, I think personally, this is just my opinion, that uh, uh, that uh, that is not a good process because that impedes on the discretion of the prosecution and it gives a undue oversight authority in a way that's not appropriate to the judiciary because the, in, in the state of Utah, that panel of judges can give you thumbs up or thumbs down and they don't really have to give you any reason for it. And, uh, and we've tried to clarify that, and it's a really strange system. So the value of a grand jury is uh, uh, this, the, that you can use it in investigations to keep things matter uh, in secret because you don't want to ruin somebody's reputation on a mere allegation. It can serve as an investigatory tool for prosecution, and, in, and it has a, a proper function. The other thing that I like about it is that it really brings the citizens in on that process. So I think when it comes to public corruption issues or use of force issues, I think grand juries are really a wonderful tool by bring, bring the citizens into owning their democracy, if you will. Now, there's other people who'll say, well, no, you can, uh, you've heard the statement, you know, you can indict a ham sandwich, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, remember, in the state of Utah, it's the, the burden of proof in a grand jury is clear and convincing evidence, which is higher than what the burden of proof in a preliminary hearing is, by which is by, you know, basically probable cause, which is by preponderance there. So, so you know, it, it really does involve the citizens in a fundamental way. And you still have the full due process rights. You still, it's not an indictment of guilt. It's just the indictment to start the criminal process. Mm-hmm. But uh, we forget the, uh, the truth-finding and investigatory function of grand juries, and we forget the role that grand juries allow citizens to play. For that reason, I like the grand jury, and I wish we had more access to it as public prosecutors. And I've even suggested, don't give me the full carte blanche on everything, which many states around the state union have grand juries, and their due process rights haven't gone in a hell in a handbasket. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the prosecutors in yeah. some states... Whatever but, uh, I can get them to investigate, whatever and, I want, and, and, and but you still have oversight, and mm-hmm. and this serves that function. But so I've said, at least in the state of Utah, their utility might be in the context of use of force, law enforcement cases, and public corruption cases. Have we ever? Have we? Uh, have you ever? I've requested uh, that, but uh, I can say that it is one of the hardest things to do in the state of Utah, and, and it's, a, it's really an ineffective tool, and it's, uh, in my humble opinion, it, 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 it's a certain arbitrariness to it, which does not serve the interest of justice or lend integrity to the process. Okay. 
So, so you, no grand jury. No grand juries. They're not for. I mean, I have. You, you've, you've requested one. You said, and you I, got I, you I, got shot down. Is uh, that? Yeah, I've, I've requested. You know, without going into details, have I uh, have I reached out for grand juries and tried to go through the process? I have, and have I found that to be a very um, frustrating. Well, 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 an objective, transparent process within which I think the mm. broad interest of justice can be met. No, I don't. I've not found them not the way they've been used in the state of Utah. Okay. It, 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 we're very. We're an anomaly. We're an anomaly, and you know, in in most other states, the prosecution has that authority and discretion to do that, and, and it's a prosecutorial function, but not in the state of Utah. Yeah, and I only I only asked about it because it, it, it just occurred to me there must be some problem with it uh, in connection with this Mark Jensen, and somebody had said, well, if he you put him in front of a grand jury, or maybe he said put me in front of a grand well, jury, and I'll tell you all kinds of I, things. I don't, think, I don't think I'm on uh, a turn to say that. I think that at least on the public record, uh, uh, my colleague Troy has said that, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's sought, he's, he may be seeking a grand jury. So, so the thing is, you mm-hmm. know, like I said, um, it is what it is, and it's a, a, it's a very ineffective tool in the state of Utah. Yeah. Uh, I wish that tool was available, and we can certainly create Does that have it. to be done legislatively? It does. It does. It does. You know, every time we talk about it, I have defense attorneys who come and say, you know, oh, this is this will run amok and this and that, which is ironic because the burden of proof in the grand jury as, uh, in the state of Utah is fundamentally different than the preliminary hearing uh, where, where we can file charges, and, uh, and that burden is very, very low. Defense so, attorneys are not yeah. real hat. They, they'd rather not. They, they, they wouldn't, but what I've, su- what I've suggested is that you can uh, statutorily narrow the scope not to use grand juries in every criminal action, but in, I think in public corruption cases, I think a grand jury is a very, very effective tool. You know, I have friends who are um, defense attorneys, uh, and they and, and they have uh, defended uh, people who they knew were guilty, and you know, and I've said, why do you do that? You know, you know this person is guilty. Why? Why do you want to defend them? And he said, because every they say because everyone deserves Absolutely. a defense. Absolutely, the state has all the power, the, and, and uh, you are the guy. You're the state. You're the guy with all the power. Well, let, let me put it this way. Uh, uh, first of all, um, protecting the constitutional rights of everyone is not a defense attorney function. But if we have a just system, it is the function of the prosecution which actually articulates the charges. And I take that responsibility very seriously and as an affirmative obligation. And I think that uh, that uh, the do, uh, everybody's due process rights deserve protection. And the, what's unique about the American system of justice is that it, that's where our legitimacy comes from. Because when we convict somebody and we say they had a fair trial, their due process rights were, uh, were preserved. It's not whether you, uh, I don't get to simply file charges because I think you're guilty or innocent or whatever. That's a function of the jury to do. The the, uh, the so so I think that the that the due process rights are essential, and and prosecutors have an affirmative role in making sure that everybody's due process rights are protected, not just the defense attorneys. We are jointly committed in that process. When we talk about institutional reform, we're saying really is that prosecutors need to be more affirmatively engaged in that part of that process, and and I respect that. Yeah. I was involved in a uh, just a minor criminal um, case where I was essentially the victim mm-hmm. of of a crime, and uh, <clears throat> we went we went to court, uh-huh. and uh, and Sorry. I and I finally figured out exactly how the judicial system works. Can you tell me? <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I was—I'm I, kidding. I'm just kidding. I, but I, th- I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so there I am with my. 
attorney, uh-huh. and then and my attorney says, "Come on in here. We're gonna we're gonna talk to the prosecutor." He said, "I've been talking to the prosecutor in this case, and now we're gonna talk to him. Oh, he he wants to talk to you." And so they said, "We've worked out this deal." Yeah. Uh, but we won't do it in, because you're the victim here. You're yeah. the one who has to say, no, let's go to trial uh-huh. or let's take this deal. And so uh, I said, so what if what if I if we go to trial? And they said, well, uh, you'll probably win. But it you know, it's a lot of time and resources and people's money and taxpayer money and so forth. Uh, the The perpetrator has agreed to do this and we will hold him to that and if he doesn't do it then we'll file charges against him mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. but it was all worked out in a deal in an yeah. office right. uh with with the defense attorney and the prosecutor right. and and it was very i really enjoyed the way they worked right. together yes and and they i obviously knew each other and and, and uh, i would say that 90 well first of all uh, i would say 100 percent of the cases have that kind of interaction not and i think not. that's i think that's good that is very good and about probably 97 98% of the cases are resolved that way and people say oh they you know they make deals yeah yeah well they but, do and well, that's okay well and, and and part of that is you know sometimes i say it in the sense of what is the value of this case uh, what is the measure of justice that we're seeking? What uh, objective are we trying to achieve? Uh, so let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, one is, let's say, if I've got somebody on a serious felony and, and, you, and you as a victim say, look, you know, what I really want him is I want him in prison and I, and I want him mm-hmm. to pay for his crime and I want him to think about this. Now, if, if a person is saying, look, uh, with, uh, you know, whether you charge this person, he pleads to a second-degree felony or a third-degree felony, He'll end up in prison given his objective criminal history, and he's willing to plead to a third-degree felony. Can we do that? Mm-hmm. And, and at the end, the measure of justice is being, he's being held accountable, et cetera, et cetera, and we don't need to waste the resources, and everybody gets something out of that conversation. That's a, that's a, that's a win. Other times, you may find that, uh, and let me push back this way, I think it's very important to recognize that uh, when that case, if that was a criminal case, Bill, it didn't say... You know, Bill Allred versus uh, Defendant John Doe. It said the state of Utah. How do you know his name was John? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it said the state of Utah. And sometimes in my, over my career, I've had individual uh, victims who have insisted on the absolute strict prosecution of this person because no deal was good enough. And the evidence wasn't there. And now what I've said is that I think the victims have an absolute essential role to play in it in the sense that I want your input, I want to know, and I want to make sure that uh, you're fine with it. But it would also be unfair to let somebody who's a victim who is emotionally invested in a very different way uh, to drive the conversation. So there have been scenarios where I've uh, taken positions contrary to my victims. And I've said that the victim does not support this agreement, but this is what justice demands that we do, or this is what the evidence demands, and I have to make that decision as a public prosecutor. And the victim can address that issue, and judge they're here to address that and their objection to it. But at the end of the day, ultimately, I am responsible for that. So I think victims have an absolute role to play in it, and I find that uh, a very important essential part of what I do. But I think it would be misleading to say that victims should control the prosecution and, 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 uh, and certainly because it's not in their name, it's in the name of the state. And sometimes victims may say, I want this case tried and the end result is going to be dismissed because the uh, evidence may be compromised but the def- a defendant is willing to take responsibility for the conduct, maybe not at the same level of the classification of the offense as the other and so I have to do what is right for the measure of justice in the name of the state, not in the name of the victim. 
So I think it's important to recognize that part of the equation and that, but having said that, yes, 98, 99% of the time, victims play a role in it. Uh, the defense attorney plays a very active role. We negotiate and we figure out what the true value of that case is and what is the measure of justice that we all can live with. I, th- I think it's yeah. just fascinating yeah. that they can, and, and even so- sometimes when the defense attorney doesn't really know the prosecuting attorney, yeah. but they can speak yeah. with one another Let- on a civil level and with the same kind of knowledge. Let me tell you why. This is also systemically why it's important. Look, last year my office probably screened 17,500 felonies. Okay? And uh, and we probably filed on about 14,500 of those felonies. Um, there is no system here where you and I could try 14,000 cases, right? Uh, the, uh, so the goal is those that are the most essential uh, cases where there's genuine issues in, in contention and factual issues or evidentiary issues where we need to actually go in front of a magistrate or a, a, a jury of your peers to do that. We want to do those for those cases because it is an expensive process, and systemically we could not prosecute and try everybody because we, we wouldn't be able to do one year's uh, case, let alone multiple year's uh, cases. You're a Democrat. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Do you, do you, um, do you like the fact that... Uh, that people uh, in uh, prosecutors, uh, uh, the district attorney, that you run as affiliated with a party. Do you like running a fi- being affiliated with a party, or should it be nonpartisan? It, it, it should be nonpartisan. Uh, it, you know, we were talking about the swallow shirt look matter a little earlier. Uh, uh, my uh, colleague and friend, uh, Senator Todd Weiler, a few years ago, there was some question whether attorneys general should be appointed or whether they should be elected. And uh, and I uh, and I had said no, uh, you shouldn't appoint them because the same problems and challenges would be there uh, if you appointed them. Uh, but they should be elected because they're directly uh, accountable to the citizens uh, who empower them. And if they don't follow through on it, they can be uh, unelected. But having said that, my other proposal was that whether and here's the thing: whether you're a sheriff or you're or a DA or a county surveyor or a auditor, do you really need to be a Republican or a Democrat? Yeah. I don't think you do. And I've used this analogy. Look, uh, as a homeowner, if your house is burning down and the firefighters who show up to put out the fire, you as a homeowner in the middle of the night don't run out there in your pajamas and say, hang on, hang on, hang on. I know my house is burning down, but hang on a second. All the, uh, all the Republican uh, firefighters to the left over here and all the Democratic firefighters to the right because I'm going to choose which one of you is going to put out my fire. You say, no, man, there's the fire. Here's the problem. Help me solve it and grab a, bu- a bucket of water and let's put out the fire, right? And, and, and what... As a public prosecutor, I don't look to see, you know, what your race is, what your uh, religion is, what your political affiliation is when you're a victim. I don't file my cases based on uh, what who you are as a victim, and I don't prosecute people based on being whether I'm a Democrat or a Republican. I follow the law, and I think some of these offices have become politically identified, and those are basically notches on the belt of political parties, but they are practically uh, uh, unnecessary for what we do as our job, and, and especially when it comes to 
prosecution and uh, and law enforcement. In fact, I've said this way to Jim Winder, and I've had this conversation before, and I've said it this way. You know, we become politicians as a accident, as in supplement to the job. Because I've been a public prosecutor, and then I uh, wanted to get involved and take on responsibility and work on policy issues. And so I had to run for office. But I am still at heart a public prosecutor. Yeah, most uh, of the people who work in yeah. your office are, are not elected officials. No, they're, they're not. They're not. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and Jim Winder, as a uh, law enforcement person, was a cop first. And that's his career. That's his profession. And the being elected is incidental and supplement to his profession. Uh, unlike other, uh, if you're a governor or you're running for that, that's not your profession that you're serving. You're you're adding on to in a political uh, politics first. So I think there are functions. I mean, do we really need a Republican or a Democrat surveyor for God's sake? I mean, uh, I mean, you know that you know, it's madness. Well, maybe uh, treasurer. <laughs> you know, you know. So you know, I, I think I think we. I don't think we should be. Here. And and I would assume you think it's madness that uh, every once in a while. Well, I think it's surfaced almost in every session of the legislature lately, uh, having school board people oh, that's be a, that's another one of those partisans. Yeah. They identify as a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that, that just seems uh, awful uh, to me. I think I think that speaks to maybe broader issue. Maybe we'll go later in our conversation here. You know, that really talks about the kind of sad state of our politics. That's where I was leading. Okay, you know, I think the the political conversation, I think, has skewed in this country to a dramatic uh, level, which I don't think serves the public interests anymore. Yeah, I, that's where I was leading okay. that, with that with that comment, and yeah. I uh, uh, I don't, and it's forced me to do it. Right. It's forced, frankly, I just about can't understand why anybody can be a Republican. Yeah. Well, because, and it's forced me into that labeling, even though I know, you know, and I'll turn I'll turn back around and say, but except I know, you know, I know Spencer Cox, yeah. and he's a great guy. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a nice man, and he's not. He wouldn't do anything to hurt anybody if he could help. You know, well, I mean, I just well, you know, I I think I think uh, um, you know, look, we can have policy differences. We can talk about what on what direction we want our country to go to. But I, I don't. I am not going to judge the moral worth or a character value of a person based on the party affiliation. And I understand how we may get there, and we've gotten to a culture where we sort of have become those judgments. We are judging the moral worth and character of individuals by the virtue of how they politically identify themselves, and that is such a skewed perspective, and we've kind of gotten into it as a part of our environmental conditioning, and I think we're better than that, right? So, so for example, you know, yesterday I ran into uh, Thomas Wright from the Republican Party, who was the chair, for, oh, yeah. uh, you oh, yeah. know, and so forth. I love Thomas. He's a good, genuine guy. Met him a couple guy, of times, a, great a sharp guy, guy yeah. a nice yeah. guy. And, yeah. and, and he and I share the same the sort of issues. You know, I use this analogy sometimes when I talk about it. I go, I know my neighbor as my neighbor. And when my neighbor is gone on vacation, I look at it, I look out for his house and make sure the mail's brought in and, and nothing goes on in there. When I go on vacation, I do ask him to do the same thing. 
He's a Republican, I'm a Democrat. I don't see him as a Republican. I see him as my neighbor, as my person who shares the same sort of uh, uh, concerns about our community and so forth. And I think we have to uh, we have to stop looking at each other through the party affiliation. There was an interesting study that, that was done by the Pew Group a, about a year and a half ago, and they basically broke the the electorate down this way. They said 12 to 13 percent on the extreme edges of both political parties uh, are driving the conversation. They're the most loud. They're the most vocal. They're the most politically involved. They're the ones who are more politically invested, and they're the ones who are most socially and politically active. So 12 to 13 percent on the fringes of both parties are driving the conversation. Now, when I, I used that in a speech, and I said this way, it was really fascinating, because in the middle is where most people reside, whether they're independents or the what we call the middle class. I mean, it's been fascinating to me that both extremes still use the vernacular of the middle class. Even though they are taking extreme positions, they realize, and what that tells me is that they realize that they are on the extreme and they need the consensus from the middle to give value to their extreme position. And that's why they use the language of the middle class in order to uh, push their political agenda. But in the process, the middle class has allowed, or the middle of the group of the people in that uh, uh, distribution, have allowed their political conversation to be hijacked by 12 to 13 percent on both sides of the extreme. And so that is an abdication of responsibility, civic responsibility. And, I, and I'm absolutely convinced that we are in the mess that we are is because through our silence, we have acquiesced and abdicated our political voice to people who do not have our best interest at heart. That, well, that's, leaves, that opens up a whole... Uh, so, so if let's go there. Let's go there, well, Bill. I'm here with you. <laughs> so, I mean, and that's our hour. <laughs> well, so so if well, that's fifty-eight minutes. So let's, let's just we can wrap it up here pretty quick. But let, so, so then, what is you say by our silence? What is our responsibility our, to our, fix that? Our responsibility is first not to be politically hijacked by not only those that are dissimilar to us, but also those who are the most familiar to us. Our responsibility is to recognize that we, on an individual basis, have the right to question authority, to question the logic, to question the rationale. We also need to meet, uh, have the responsibility to be politically engaged and to be intellectually be honest. It is a burden. Freedom is a responsibility. It is not something you can abdicate to somebody to do for you. You have to own your democracy. You have to own your freedom. You have to be engaged. You have to be involved. And you have to exercise your franchise. And you have to kick the bums out when they're not being responsible. But, we, but, but intellectual dishonesty is, 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 is held up as a virtue right now right it is a virtue in natural now the intellectual dishonesty of donald trump of the people who say they're going uh, of the republican leaders who say that they're well he's well we're going to vote for him that's intellectual dishonesty that's right uh, uh mitch mcconnell saying about president obama when when uh, obama tr they overrode his veto of the saudi arabian yeah. uh, let's let's yeah. let the families yeah. sue saudi arabia and mitch mcconnell and the boys come out after that and say well you know uh Maybe we're going to have to fix this. Uh, maybe you know it's the president's fault though because he should have told us about this earlier. Bullshit. Well, let me let me put it this way. Intellectual dishonesty. Let me t let me put it this way. 
when somebody comes into a group of people and tells a racist joke or homophobic joke or an anti-Mormon uh, joke, mm. and we, through our silence, don't say anything, then that person feels empowered to bash the uh, Mormons, to bash the gays, to, to bash the Muslims. Through our silence, we acquiesce and we give power to the person who is saying that. No. And the first time when somebody tells a racist, homophobic, or anti-religious joke, and you say, hang on a second, that's BS, I'm not going to let you say that, you check them in a way that they will think twice about saying that in the future. So to some extent, the intellectual dishonesty has become the norm by the silence by the empowerment that we've given to those other folks. But also, it is absolutely intellectual dishonest for both sides of the parties to say that somehow they do not have the responsibility of the state of affairs that we have. It, it, look, I'm a Democrat, and I would be the first one to say that Democrats cannot just by themselves say that we've not made mistakes. And by the same token, I can look at the Republicans and say, I refuse to let you say that somehow you've never made mistakes. We've all made mistakes. And part of the thing is for us to be personally be honest about those mistakes that we have. We as politicians do not have a honest conversation and we as citizens allow the dishonest conversation to be had in our name or and through our silence acquiesce in letting that conversation be perpetuated. And in that sense, as they fail us, we fail them and in the process we fail ourselves collectively. And that really is the challenge of our 21st century. If you want to know what the challenge of the current politics right now is, is that everybody deep in their heart knows when Donald Trump is lying. Everybody in their deep in their heart knows that there is a question about Hillary's emails and we need to just bring it out in the open and own it. And I think for the at the last debate for her to say, you know what, I made a mistake. That was not something that I should have done. Something that she should have said a long time ago. Sure. Okay? And by the same token, when Donald Trump gets up and, and starts spouting about anti-Muslims and, and, and so forth, let me, let me give you a perfect example. The Khan family Okay, the, the gold the, star the, family. The, the gold star family. One, if people think that they cannot have a make a difference, the courage of Mr. Khan to stand up there and say the emperor has no clothes and pull out the constitution out of his uh, breast uh, uh, pocket and point it out and say you have not read this, that was a very poignant moment. That was one citizen calling out a presidential candidate as one individual who said the emperor has no clothes. Okay, and that was one citizen, and that is the power of every citizen. You know, every Friday, every Friday, any citizen who wants to meet with me at my office can request. I have called citizens meeting, and I've had people who come up there and they'll say, "Well, oh, I'm sorry, I'm taking your time or whatever." I said, "No, no, no. This office belongs to you, and if you want to come here and want to yell at me for the next thirty to forty-five minutes, it's your right, and it's my privilege to listen. Now, I don't have to agree with you, but you need to feel like you can walk in here and ask for that, and it is my privilege to be here with you, even if you want to yell at me. And that starts a very different kind of a conversation with our uh, with our folks and we have to have those conversations now you know uh, there are huge big issues and maybe we should touch upon first of all how do we get into this situation you know and maybe maybe I, that's I the, maybe do, that's the tease to into our next hour yeah, yeah. <laughs> next next time we talk because i don't i'm not i'm really not sure how that how it's become so absolutely polarized like that i i just it's it's stunning to me that it but maybe this is the maybe this is the apotheosis of it maybe this is the the apex maybe this moment in time is like 
when we're done with this, people will go, good Lord, what were we thinking? I mean, why can't, why, for instance, the Republicans, and I hate to harp on them, but, you know, maybe they'll say, you know, we're worried, we're, we claim we're so worried about, uh, the, we're going to support Trump because we're so worried about the Supreme Court and who Hillary might put on the Supreme Court. Well, then, for God's sake, put Merrick Garland on the Supreme that's, Court that's, because he's a conservative. That's right. A f- apparently a fair-minded, good, conservative man. It has been absolutely fascinating for me to watch people that I absolutely respect to go through intellectual contortions, I know. intellectual contortions to rationalize what they intuitively and intellectually know is that, uh, that they should not be doing or supporting. But it is fascinating for me to see the human mind go through this gymnastics to kind of make it palatable. And the moment that you have to struggle with that level of intellectual gymnastics, that ought to be the first sign that it is not the ideal that is driving my conversation anymore, but rather my ideology that's driving my conversation. And there is a level of intellectual dishonesty, uh, dishonesty at all stages of this, of this conversation. And it has been a fascinating thing to see. And you know what? You're right. Uh, Bill, you're right. Uh, 20 years from now, 40 years from now, 60 years from now, history is not going to be very kind to us when they go back and look through and what we as a nation have been participating in. Uh, um, you know, the, the, you know, how do we allow ourselves to get to this point? And and uh, and you know, we Donald Trump. Let me put it to you. And, and here's my crystallization of Donald Trump's candidacy. This political process is our first TV reality campaign. Yeah. D- Donald Trump is our first TV reality candidate, and in a bizarre way, all of us are both the authors the script writers and the actors in our own version of the Truman Show. And we are, we are living through this very mm-hmm. interesting, mm-hmm. absurdist, existential moment. And we either uh, are going to have to just sort of step back and say, wow, we, we lived through this absurdity mm-hmm. and, uh, and we have to own what we did in the madness of our times. Or we have to go through the intellectual, mental gymnastics that we're playing right now, and it's on full display, yeah. and we can't hide from it. You know, and people say uh, uh, there's never been an election. I mean, there, as you read history, in the past, there, uh, I think it was Alexander Hamilton, it might have been, I forget who, but who who bought a newspaper so that he could just continually, viciously attack his opponent. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's happened in the past, yeah. uh, past, past politics, and that we've been mean and, and vicious to one another but, before. But have you ever seen this level? Not, a, not since I've been uh, around, okay. no. And, and no. have you seen this level of just sort of, uh, 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 I mean, we have fact-checking, we have uh, instant replay, we've got Twitter, we've got, we, we, are, we are the most literal and, the documented existence uh, on the face of the earth right now. Probably not in modern in modern politics. There's never been anything like this. So, so think. when you have a society that has this level of uh, 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 documentation, then there is a social uh, phenomena that's going on that has to go through a level of bad faith to sustain that. And that, to me, is, a, from an evolutionary perspective, one of the most fascinating sociological points of this election uh, and this process. 
And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying doom and gloom on everybody. I'm still an optimist. But I'm saying it is we have never, in a political and sociological way, experienced the kind of phenomena, given the technology that we have. We are really on an interesting cusp on the history of the United States of America through this election process. Yeah. Well, it'll be... Uh, so, so they're building you a new house. They are. They're building us a new building. Uh, a uh, new uh, uh, dist- uh, district Right attorneys. here on 500 South. Yeah. And uh, it's for the first time we're actually building two buildings we're building one downtown one in west jordan uh, for the first time we will have our own standalone building i don't uh, even where's your office now well right now i have my office which is in the in a uh, business building on 300 south and broadway i have another office on 2100 south and state i have another office out in west jordan and then we took over the uh through an interlocal agreement the salt lake city prosecutor's office so i have an office at the salt lake city prosecutor's office oh, so so i'm constantly running be nice to consolidate some of this won't it? you have yeah. more offices than there are days of the week it sounds like <laughs> Well, well, what I have is like five or six people who have access to my master calendar, and then they get to decide where I'm going to be. So I get up in the morning every day, and uh, what I thought I was going to be doing the next day, it changes by the hour, and they have to, there's only one rule. They have to give me travel time from one spot to the other, and then my calendar evolves every day like that. So Uh, so, uh, you are not up for re-election until... 2018. That's correct. Say? That's uh, correct. So, w- is that enough time to get into the new? Is so, it going to be so, finished? So, our, what, what is anticipated is that we will finish our West Jordan project by probably, literally, about a year from now, which is going to be around uh, October of next year, mm-hmm. and then we're going to uh, have the downtown office uh, uh, ready for occupancy probably March or April of 2018. And uh, this has been a 30-year conversation to build this uh, uh, really? the, this building. Mm-hmm. And so one of the objectives that I had when I came into office was this was something that David Yoakum uh, had started, uh, like I said, many years ago, several decades ago, to finish this conversation and to sort of give you the proper context of bureaucracy. When David Yoakum originally planned on building this project, it was going to probably cost the county about $5 million, and 30 years later it's going to cost us about 60-some-odd million dollars. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that's the that's the pace of bureaucracy for yeah. you. You know, uh, you're going to run for re-election. Well, it's that's a little a, early. Probably. That, that's a really nice question, uh, and I, I'm going I'm to I'm answer it this way, uh, which is to say that uh, I have been very uh, uh, gratified by the political ambitions that all my colleagues have of, of, for me, other than myself. And uh, I, I've always said that uh, I, I want to do my job. I want to do it well right now, today. I love my job. I love the privilege of being the Salt Lake County DA. I love the opportunity that it provides uh, to me to serve my community. And I'm just having too much fun uh, even with all the heartaches, uh, uh, you know, uh, to to do, want to do anything else that at heart. Um, well, think I love about this. Senator Gill, though. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, but you know, I'll people t- say that to you sometimes, uh, though, don't uh, they? Well, I like or I Governor say, Gill. I, I have people who have greater ambitions for myself than I do. Mm-hmm. But let me let me let me put it to you this way: we're two of them. <laughs> uh, 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 let me put it to you this way: there is. Nothing. Uh, let me share. We started. We talked about this, for example, just a little while ago. Let me share it with. The, with we talked about the homeless issue. Uh, in one of our operations, uh, there was a gentleman who was brought in. He was across the room, and I was in my office at, as part of this operation. We kind of made eye contact. He recognized me. I recognized him. 
He was somebody who I've known through the criminal justice system for the last uh, probably 15 years. Uh, we started the mental health court about 15 years ago. He was a per- person who came and participated in that. As a, uh, as a, a per, uh, mental uh, health uh, problems? Uh, mental health issues. And, and he was uh, off his meds. He was, uh, in a, he was terrified. And he and I got an opportunity to talk to each other. Uh, and he was very emotional. He was uh, very uh, scared. And, uh, and we talked to each other. We got caught up. He brought a certain level of comfort to my soul. I hope I was able to bring a certain level of comfort to his soul. And at that moment, I knew exactly why I liked my job and I love my job. And there's nothing else I would want to do to compromise, to have that moment of that conversation. And that is why I'm very happy where I'm at. I think that's a good place to stop. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Uh, Sim Gill, Salt Lake County District Attorney. Um, thanks a lot. Thank you. Uh, thank you to the 50 West here for uh, providing a space for us and some food. And uh, thanks, Dylan, for producing the show. Thank you, Dylan. And uh, remember, if you're pouring the drinks, always make mine a double. <laughs> <laughs>